For Belly of the Beast Life Stories, I'm David All. Like I said, the guilt comes back to me. Why I'm alive? Why? You know, it's just one of those things, you know, it just stays with you. This podcast is about the time we all get knocked down in life and climb up a new person. Listen for free wherever you get your podcasts. Let me introduce you to Martha Sternbach. 75 years ago, Martha survived the Holocaust. And now today, at 93, she looks back at the experience with a broken heart, but also a warm and kind soul. Martha Sternbach, welcome to Belly of the Beast Life Stories. Can you explain to us what it was like when you returned to Hungary after the Holocaust? Yes, it was very dramatic because the first time I find out what happened to my family. I had no idea. I thought they were all alive. But unfortunately, I had no idea. And that's when I heard because the Russians liberated Auschwitz in January 1945. And then the American army liberated all those death camps. And that's what I find out what happened. It was in 1945, May, end of May. When was the last time you were with your family? In the train on the way to Auschwitz. And I was separated. They separated the men from the women. And then my sister and I was holding on to my mom. And this couple asked my mom in German how old she was. She spoke very good German. She was only 42. And I have no idea why she said 52. And then when she said that he pushed her to the left before we even asked what's going on, she said, don't worry, you're going to see her later. And now we were in Poland, and the concentration camp called Auschwitz. And they were rushing us to go in further, further. And it was getting lighter. You could make out with very high wire fences behind that wooden barracks with brick chimneys. And they were rushing us to go in further. This area called Birkenau. We came to a very large building. There were two girls. The older girl's name was... She, they called her the blockhead Esther. And the younger was good. Yeah, I hope I remember her name. And they told us to go into t- in the building and we have to take all our clothes off. There were hooks on the wall. Just hold on to our shoes. And we had to stand in line. And I was looking ahead and I saw this cop was shaving the girl's hair off and everywhere we had hair. I thought maybe they were dirty. Can, can you explain for us what a capo is? Well, they were actually prisoners from Czechoslovakia, from Poland, Jewish prisoners. They were wearing tri- striped suits, and they called them capos. I don't know exactly why, but that's what they called them, capos. You know, the Germans were very interesting, clever, because they did their dirty work. You know, they made them do all that work. And so you were at Auschwitz, which was the site of one of the most lethal extermination camps, and it was the largest center for Jewish extermination. They estimate 1.1 million Jews were killed at Auschwitz. Right. Well, you know, while we were there, we had no idea. We had wire fences, electric wire fences, you know, and many a times we were talking, if it gets very difficult, maybe we just go and touch the wire and end our life. But of course, when you're young, you know, you still have hope. 
and we waited and it was interesting because there was always some kind of a rumors. One day somebody said this rabbi sent the message, you will have to wear a, wa- a red ring. If somebody had something red, we were pulling out the thread and putting the thread on our finger. So there was always, I don't know who made up those rumors to just give us hope, you know. And until I was with my sister and with our friends, you know, it wasn't as difficult. But once I was separated, it just became very, very difficult. You know, I became like a zombie, just follow orders and, you know, but emotionally it was very, very difficult. How old were you? I became 18 in 1944, November the 17th. I became 18 years old. And, you know, can you describe what Auschwitz was like? Well, you know, we were isolated, you know, all around our high wires and the barracks. I'm not sure exactly it was at least 31 barracks, you know. We were in the barrack 18. You know, and once in a while they took us to take a shower and then they disinfect our clothes while we were taking a shower. And, you know, sometimes you don't didn't get back your dress that I, you had on before. So everybody was rushing together, something that fits right, you know. And in the beginning it was warm, you know, so it wasn't that bad. But at the end, in the beginning of October, it was very cold in the morning, especially when you had to stay outside. You know, they counted us three times a day. And Auschwitz, it, it wasn't just one place, right? It was a series of camps. Well, many, you know, this was Birkenau where we were. I remember when we went back a couple of years ago, I saw in Auschwitz they had blankets and pillows, you know, but we didn't have anything. We just had the wooden bed, you know, so it was, it was really rough in Birkenau. So I should point out that uh, there was Auschwitz One, which was the main camp, at, yes, which was where yes. prisoners were held uh, from the war. There was Auschwitz Two, which was Birkenau, which is what yes, you're talking about. Yes, this was the largest camp, and it was quote unquote the extermination camp. Yes, that's where the gas chamber in the crematorium was. When we went back, you know, the Nazis really blew up the crematorium because they wanted to get get rid of evidence. But the ovens were still on when we went back. You know, they showed the ovens, yes. And how long were you there? In the beginning of June, we arrived there. And in the beginning of October, they already took us away. And you weren't aware of the exterminations while you were there? Nothing. You know, I don't know if I mentioned before, you know, while we were already selected, we were outside. I saw this open truck full of bruised naked bodies. Well, I looked at it and I just had to believe what I saw. But then if somebody was sick, you know, everybody said, don't say nothing because if they're going to take you away, you never come back. So sometimes when you got up in the morning, you see a dead body wrapped in a gray, gray blanket, you know, so a lot of girls died. So how is it possible that you weren't aware of seeing this horrendous you know many many times i think i think my sister must have protected me because i think she had she must have known something i remember every time we had selections i could see that she was scared it was very strange you know i think there were 10 in line when they were counting us so from my hometown there were two other girls my age and two 10 years older than my sister somehow they always pulled me out of the line but while we were in the sea lager, you know, you could change places to one another. I remember standing with a group and I saw the girls 
taking bread from my barracks. So I ran to them and I took a bread. They were angry at me, but I wanted to go back. That's where my sister was. So for, for all these months, I managed to get back because we were separated many a times. You were separated from your sister? Yes, but while we were in the sea lager, I managed to get back to her again. But I re- still remember the very last night we were together in the sea lager. You know, I don't know if she had the feeling she was holding on to me that last night. And I remember when we had the selection again, we had to get on this. I could see her face. I never forget that. She was so scared. Did you say anything to her? I said to her, don't worry, don't worry. You're going to be all right. It's almost like I was the older one, you know, because, you know, I thought she was so scared. Because, you know, she was thin when we got there, and after all these months, she was even thinner, you know. But when the blockade, as the military told me that, because I told her I would like to go with my sister, she said, you're not being fed. They're going to take her someplace when there's going to be more food, so she should gain weight. And I believed her. I don't know why. I was so naive or just plain stupid that I believed her. I guess I wanted to believe her. And what was the last time you saw her? That was the last time I saw her. We were standing in line without clothes, and they pushed her in that little boot, you know, like when you go to vote, you know, with a curtain. They were pushing the girls that were not selected for work in that little boot, and they pushed her in that little boot. What was uh, in this little booth? You know, after I was wondering, it was a small little boot back and all these girls fit in. To me, I think it must have had a strap door. And probably, I don't know, from the fall or gas, I don't know what happened after. I really don't know. And nobody, I don't think anybody know. Is this when you saw Joseph Mengele? Many times. You know, he used to come to select us and he had this... Kind of like a whip, horse whip, and he would touch you. With that, pulled you out of the line. That's how he was selecting the girls. So, Joseph Mengele, he was also known as the Angel of Death. He, yes. He was a German SS officer yeah. and a physician. Oh, he was very friendly. He was a good-looking man, very friendly. And like I said, they were very clever, you know. They just know how to... And many people that arrived there... Daytime, they had a whole uh, orchestra playing, you know. We came middle of the night, you know, very early in the morning, so we didn't see that, didn't have orchestra. Did he select your sister? No, by that time, I don't know who was selecting. No, I didn't see him the last time. No, he wasn't there. So thinking about life in the camp, in the concentration camp, what did you think about at night? You know... Because we were all together, I guess, that's what's helping us. And I could tell you something interesting. There were two girls, sisters, very good voices, and they would sing to us, you know, uh, Hebrew songs. And these two girls had grandparents in the town where I was was born. And my two cousins from Budapest would come down in the summer, so we always spent the summer together. So these two girls had good voices and always sing to us to keep us quiet. Because other than that, then we went out, they gave us something to eat. That was three times a day when they counted us. They called it Tselapel. Otherwise, we were just inside and, you know, talking between us. Many times we talked, if we ever get out from there and the world is going to be fine, that is going to be changed for the better. Yeah. How did you maintain the will to live? Well, I never lost faith in God. 
And somehow I always believed that probably I had parents, especially my mom was such a good person, you know, loving, caring, you know, and I don't know where she was, but I always thought that she probably think of us and, and that too helped me. Yes. Was there abuse happening all the time around you? Only once I saw, you know, she was a doctor and she saw her husband through the wires and she was talking to her husband and this SS woman was beating her up. She was standing there. She didn't cry. She was standing there. She did survive. That's the only time I saw beating, you know, because, you know, our blockhead as the meeting, you know, she was Jewish. She was from Czechoslovakia. So, you know, we behaved, you know, we weren't white people, you know, and what we talked about, but if ever we get out from there, what we gonna eat? Because we were always hungry. You know, whatever they gave us, it really wasn't enough. And you're young, you need more food. And a lot of time we sit and talk about what we gonna eat when if we get out of there, yes. That's what kept you going. Yeah, well, you know, hopeful, hopeful, yes. So how did you return to your hometown after the liberation? My aunt came with me, you know. And my neighbors were telling me that the mayor ran away and most of the homes were looted. I'm going to tell you, when things started to happen, we had no idea what going to happen. The new laws started to happen. At night, we picked up the floorboard for one of the big bedrooms, and my, we, we dug a big hole there. And my father lined it with metal pieces that came, candy came in those. And we put the silver and very expensive fabric silk and, you know, filled up that bag and we covered it up. We put put back the board and we covered it up with carpet. So when I came back, they told us they find a big hole in the room and most of even the furniture was stolen, you know. So uh, if you wanted to get back your property, you would have had to stay in Hungary and hire a lawyer. I couldn't care about things anymore, you know. We had a whole store of merchandise, you know. But my neighbors were telling me that the police would always go and they used to come out fat. They probably stole things and they hide it under their uniform. Like I said, things didn't mean anything anymore. I just wanted to get out of the country. The Russians were occupying and I really didn't want to stay there anymore. So according to the Encyclopedia of the Holocaust, 569,000 Hungarian Jews were killed, representing nearly three quarters of all Jews in Hungary. So your entire community was... Yes, from my hometown only, I and two other girls survived. Well, a couple of men did survive. I really didn't meet them, you know. I think they went to Palestine. I didn't meet anybody else, just these two two friends. One was my age and one was 10 years older. Do you remember the day that you learned that your family had all been killed at Auschwitz? Well, it was end of May when I got back to Hungary. I don't know exactly the date. You know, I just remember when, after we came down from those hills, it was 1945, April the 13th on a Saturday. And of course, the war wasn't over yet, so we had to stay in Germany. And I don't know exactly the date when I got back. And I don't remember, it was winter when I left Hungary, but I don't remember exactly what month it was. I know it was winter. Regardless of the exact day, but do you remember like how you learned about the news and how you how yeah, many and feel? Yeah, I came and... back and I, you know, when we arrived at the station, the young men 
most of them were survivors of the Holocaust. Yes, me and my name and where I was from. And my mom had an older sister that lived in Budapest. I had two cousins, one was my age and one was two years younger, and my uncle. And he said to me, you know, your whole, you rent the whole families back in their own apartment. And that's when I got there, that's when I find out he told me what happened, you know. And it was difficult, but uh, no matter how much I cried, it didn't change anything. And I didn't want my, my aunt, uncle, worry about me, you know. So I tried my best. And someone asked me if I had any nightmares. I had no, but when I got back to Hungary, I used to dream that my whole family was alive. When I woke up, that was the nightmare, you know. The reality was a nightmare. Yes. Do you still dream about the things that happen to you? No, no. I think of my husband and my, uh, you know, and I don't have nightmares, really. And when you read or watch television, sometimes you you dream about that. But I dream a lot. It's interesting. I dream about that with my husband because I think about, you know, it reminded me the song not long ago, a dream is a wish you hard makes before you go to sleep. Isn't that something? Because that's what... You know, I, all of a sudden I remembered. I wondered, but once I watched the concert from Hungary and the piano player was an American young man and the violin player was a famous Hungarian, which I have no idea who he was. And this young lady, African-American young lady, was singing Hallelujah. I don't know the words for it, but after that finished, I made up my own. I said, Hallelujah, I'm alive. Hallelujah, I have survived. But dear God, I'm brokenhearted and very, very sad because evil men murdered my whole family and my friends. But I know then their soul is up with you in heaven. So please, dear God, take good care of them. And when the day will come, when my soul will be together with all of them, then I'm going to sing hallelujah again. Hallelujah. Yeah. Martha, let's take a break. We'll come right back. Okay. Hey there, podcast listeners. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Belly of the Beast Life Stories. This is season one in our belly. We've curated 13 uplifting stories that will take us deep into the belly. At the end of each episode, stick around for a taste of the story coming out next. But if you're the curious type, visit our website now and ourbelly.com to see an overview of all 13 episodes. The best way to stay connected to this show is to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. It's 100% free to subscribe. And if you are enjoying this episode, please rate us five stars and write a quick review. It only takes a few seconds, but it helps many others discover this podcast and give it a try. And if you do rate us, send me an email at david at inourbelly.com if you write something so that I can read it and say thanks. We are back with Martha Sternbach. Martha just told her powerful story of being a survivor of the Holocaust, of living through Auschwitz and the terror of that. And then after liberation, returning to Hungary to find out the news that in Auschwitz, her entire family had been killed. You've expressed before a lot of guilt. Yes. Around this time. Yes, I felt very guilty, especially with, for my sister, you know. If I would have known, I would have run with her, I would have never survived. But I had no idea 
no idea what was going on. No. But of course, then you see young men wounded became beggars on the street, and then you see, met these young children, they didn't even remember the parents. So, you know, you kind of tell yourself, you know, at least I'm in one piece and healthy, and I felt if I'm alive, I'm a responsible person, I have to do something that means it's important. That's why when I heard about those young children, I told my aunt and uncle that I'm going to leave the country with those children. And there were organizations to arrange this, you know. And So you were working at an orphanage at, at yes, the time? Yes, I, I was getting to know during the day I spent time with those children. There was a young woman with a little daughter with them too. And when we were ready to leave the country, we were already on the train. So Hungary was called the Russian zone. And just before we went, the train went over to the American zone. These Russian soldiers came up on the train and they were looking what everybody was carrying. And they looked in my knapsack. I had that two silver candle holder. That was my mom's. And they took everything, you know. But it's interesting how I couldn't care less about things, you know. You know, when you're young, you love nice clothes and you, I felt safe. My family is always there. My home is always there. But once you lose that, everything changes. Your values, your priorities. And it was very important and the children needed me. That was very important to me. So the first stop in the American zone was Vienna. But we didn't stay there too long. They took us into Germany. I don't know if you know what a DP camp is. They called displaced persons camp. Thousands of us young girls and young men that was working on those factories lost our families and our homes. So there was a lot of these DP camps. The one I went called Leipheim. And I'm sure the American Red Cross, then there was other two organizations, the highest and the joints. They had a community kitchen and we had housing. And of course, we were trying to teach the children to write and read. And one day the children put on a little show and we were watching the children. And in front of me, a girl turned around. I became friends with those four sisters. They were much older than I was. And when, when we became, when we went home to Hungary, I stayed in Budapest and they went back to their home city. I didn't think I'm going to see them again. And seeing her like really finding your own sister, she told me we went to Budapest to look for you and your aunt and uncle said, Marta is someplace in Germany, maybe going to find her. So really I was so happy to see her and she told me, the oldest sister, her name was Bina. She was about 12 years older than I was. She married a young man that his wife and children were killed in Auschwitz. She stayed in Hungary. And she said, you know, my sister God is here. She also married a neighbor, a young man that his wife and children were killed in Auschwitz. Esther was the youngest. She was two years older than I was. And Hannah was about eight years old. So this is, an, in a way, your new family. This is what, right, because we kept until they were alive. We, were, we called each other, called Lager sisters, you know, because in Hungarian they call Lager, you know, they camp. And we kept in touch with each other. I still, Esther's daughter, she sent me a picture. My daughter has it on the telephone. She looks just like Esther, her daughter, yes. So it was important because like we were like one, you know, we never told anybody anything, but between ourselves sometimes I would remind ourselves, remember, you know, this and that, yeah. In the displaced camps, were you able to practice your religion freely? Yes, you know, the kitchen that was set up was sore. We didn't eat ham or bacon or yes, yeah, that was, yes. And we observed, you know, we had a rabbi and, you know, we studied. 
Did that start to feel like normal again? That's what, you know, the organization that I came up with, the children, they called it different one. Mizrahi was a religious, Aguda was a very religious, and Maccabi Hatsair and Hanoi Hatsair were not religious at all. So that's where Maccabi Hatsair and my friends said to your family, would like you to stay religious. That's what made me also leave the children, because they, you know, the Zionists, they don't really believe in that, you know, and it's it's so interesting. Those young children, like two two ball game team, you know, how they hated each other. For what? You know, they just because they was one was this, one was that, you know. And so uh, then we had this in the DP camp, uh, the Mizrahi, which was uh, uh, religious. An ex- incident happened, you know, I had relatives in New York and my, one of my cousins used to send me packages. And I got the notice from the post office on Friday. It was too late already to go to the post office on next day, Saturday. So I could go, but I had to sign my name to get my package. And I didn't want to sign my name. So there was a young man from Poland. They were not religious. So I said to him, if you come with me and sign for me, I'm going to give you something from the package. And the rabbi found out about it. And he told me, you know, that's worse than to say, Ask another Jew to do that for you. It was a big mistake, a big sin. <laughs> yes. And you you don't understand, you know, I don't know if you heard of a ritual bath before a, a Jewish girl gets married. They have to go to uh, and go in like dunking there, like a, a, you have to know how to swim, you know. So one, one of my friend's sister had the key to that and said we could go swimming, you know, and then they find out about it. Now, I mean, you know, girls have their period so they have to bring some dry eyes to clean that because a, a bride had to go there that, that night you know so all this thing you learn about but um, to me it's nonsense <laughs> and I guess those days they didn't have everybody uh, didn't have a bathroom right a shower or anything so they had to maybe do this you know before the stone age I guess you have to have these special baths was was there a moment after the war when you just accepted that this was the new normal? Well, like I said, when I put the puzzle together, I was the last one that saw my grandma and my cousin with the children. And my sister and I, my sister and my brother went away to school and I spent all my time with my parents. I didn't want to go away. So all this and why, if I would have gone with my friends, I would have never survived. So all this, you know, think about that. There is nothing that I could have done. And because I never lost faith in God, and I do believe that soul goes up to heaven. So I guess that. But of course, you still feel pain, you know. It's not so simple, losing your whole family. But little things, you know, I remember, I was so fortunate, the kind of a parents I had and the family I had, you know. A boy goes to yeshiva, you know, to be a bar mitzvah, you know. I think my brother must have been like 10 years old, but he looked very young, you know. And my mom said, you're going to go to the yeshiva. And he didn't go far there, my grandmother in the city. But he said, no, I was so attached to my mom. You know, he was poor, the youngest. And do I have to go? Why do I have to go? So my mom said, to be a man. You know what a man is to be a man. So, okay. Once in a while, before he came home, he would send a postcard because he loved coffee cake, what to 
make bake for him, you know. And when my father was called into the army, all of a sudden he came home. And my mom said to him, well, remember, why did you come home? Well, you know, daddy went to the army, so I, I came home. And so my mom said, remember, we talked about it. Why are you in school to be a mensch? He said, I am already a mensch. You know, he looked so young. And my mom, I was watching my mom's face, and he smiled. He said, you're right, you are a mensch. These little things I never forget, you know. And I always remember, I was kind of like a tomboy. My sister was always dead, was thin and always dressed like, like a model. And, you know, I always remember that I looked up to my sister. You know, she was a young lady and I was kind of a tomboy. <laughs> she used to tell me I took a permit and she said, what did you do with your hair? You know, so each of us, like I have three children, three grandchildren, is so different, you know, each of them have their own personality. Did you develop any coping skills? Well, I'm going to tell you, when I was in Canada, that was probably difficult because all of a sudden I didn't have my friends. Well, Esther was also with her family. I remember going up one night, looking up in the sky. I said, please, dear God, I'm so lonely. Help. You know, it, it's came time because it, you know, it was like a strange country, you know, and all of a sudden I was far from even my friends. So there were, you know, I cried a lot. I'm not saying, you know, I cried a lot. It was difficult. And even when I went to New York and I lived with my aunt and all of a sudden I said to her, you know, maybe I'm going to leave the country. I'm going to go to Palestine. But then I think it was Israel already because they voted while I was still in the DP camp to become Israel. And she said to me, oh, you would hurt us so much. We your family. Because I still felt, you know, like nobody needed me. You know, it was important that somebody should need you. You know, it was in, important. So I, I adjusted. I mean, you know, there are moments that are difficult, but I tried my best. Did you feel different than other people? You know, it's interesting. <laughs> I always remember if you travel and you ask somebody for directions, they always talk to you very loud. <laughs> I would have liked them to talk slowly <laughs> because I was hard of hearing. <laughs> but there's certain things, you know, you know, many a times I, I was worried also when I had children, they shouldn't be embarrassed with me, with my accent. You know, I remember, you know, nobody know very people, unless you had relatives in Hungary, what was a country Hungary. But there was a famous 10 little gypsy boys that played the violin. They were very famous. They traveled all around the world. So one of my, uh, my daughter's friend, Linda's friend, her mother was a piano teacher. She must have heard about these gypsies, you know. So she told everybody that Linda's mother is a Hungarian gypsy. You know, my daughter didn't tell me then, but she told me later on. So my children had, had probably have problem. Because, you know, I didn't have my own sister or my family. Okay, luckily my husband had, you know, but it, it wasn't the same, you know. Were there any sounds or any experiences that you went through that triggered old memories, like a train whistle, for example? It's interesting. I'm going to tell you something that you could deja vu. You know, we were coming to the George Washington being one night, and it was lit up, and that time, all the t- ticket takers used to wear a uniform. And I s- they became one for a second. It took me back with all those lights, you know, 
and this woman in uniform was walking to it just for a second i didn't even want to say to my my husband you know it that was something not an experience he went to uh, to hershey park with my children my grandsons were one was five and one was two and a half and it was a very hot day but there was a show with the dolphins so the big one wanted to see the show so my daughter my son-in-law went to the show and my husband and I went with my little grandson Alex inside they were entertainment and you could buy food and then I see these two older men and a young boy wearing shorts leather shorts with suspenders you know during the when we were working in the factory, it was New Year's, and they would hear the Germans having a party, and they would sing the beer barrel poker. So these two older men and this young man came and reminded me, because in Germany they dressed like that. Probably in Switzerland too dressed like that. And they started to play the beer barrel poker. And for a minute, you know, I didn't know what to do. And then all of a sudden I see everybody tapping their feet and clapping and I took my grandson's hand and I was clapping and I thought to myself, I'm free now, they're entertaining me. I mean, you could make, do negative things about it or you could see, you know, look, I'm free now. It was a very hard day and they were sweating and I said, my God, they're entertaining me. I'm a Jew and they're entertaining me, you know. So you interpret things, you know, the way you want it. And, and I like to be always more positive, you know. Getting angry or, or hate doesn't, it's a waste of energy, you know. Take us back to the first time you met your husband or first couple of times in your dating. Yeah, the very first time I remember because but, my aunt Frida said. But my question is uh, very specifically, did you bring up your experience? Never. How, never so how talked long? about, he never knew about it. And he had a sister, an older sister that was in Auschwitz, lost a little girl there and she had number on her arms. We never talked about it. You know, when he find out the first time all what happened in 1994 when I made the tape, he came with me, but he wasn't in the room. But I went home and I put on the tape and then he know. And you you made a video, a video yeah, testimonial. Yeah, we do a tour, very detailed. If you go to the YouTube, probably think that I never talked about. And and then after we, we got the brochure about the, the trip to Poland, and that's when he said we're going to go. The tour was reading it, and almost the same time he said we're going to go to that tour, yes. Was he from Hungary? He was from Romania, the area where Elie Wiesel came from, but they came before the war, all except that one sister was married and she went to Auschwitz, but her husband survived too. Your experience was very similar to Elie Wiesel's. Yeah, you know, you know, it's also, you know, we met Elie Wiesel, I don't know who has the book that, you know, he signed. And he was saying that when he was a little boy, his mother took him to this rabbi. And this rabbi said to his mother, one day he's going to be famous. Now, I don't know if he guessed or, because when you see he was younger than I was, a little skinny boy and he survived. So thing had to happen. He survived and he wrote these books and his experiences, you know. If you see, you could see the pain on his face, you know. Isn't that something? So I have this book and his speeches, everybody's speeches in in that book, you know, when we were in Washington for a couple of days. Elie Wiesel is the, uh, the author of Night, very famously, yes, yes. and many other books. Yes, I have one that, that, that was, that's a play. I don't know if I, I think I put it back in the library. I, I have so many books. 
So can we talk about your storytelling? And, you know, I want to start with the first time you went to a gathering of Holocaust survivors. Yeah, it was very important. You know, my daughters came with me to Washington. And, you know, they were workshop everywhere, you know, to talk about talk about certain things. And that was very important. And the speeches, you know, all the speeches, Ali Wiesel and President Reagan, Mrs. Reagan was there too. I have pictures of them and all the speeches. And the second generation, this young man were very involved. You know, he was he was born in the DP camp. And this couple, uh, Benjamin and Vlad Kamid, they were the ones also with Ali Wiesel that organized this, you know, the survivors. They were very active, you know. Well, they all passed away already, you know. I don't know if you ever heard of Tova Felcher. You know, so his her parents were also survivors, you know. So one year we had a tea in Washington, in California, you know, in a hotel. And she was there with her uh, parents. What was the first time you told your story? In 1994, that was when the first time. you made the videotape yes, yes. testimonial. And they, they approached me many a time, but, you know, I was always afraid because I was afraid they're going to say, you know, you, it's not true and all this, or, or write the book. I don't like that either because somebody told me, somebody said, write a book with her. And he was dark, now, putting in things that really wasn't true to be dramatic. I said, no, I wouldn't do that. No, I, I just want to say the way I lived that and the way I remembered you know, I, I wouldn't say anything that wasn't. How did you talk to your children about this? Well, they they heard about it. When I made that tape, I made copies. They all have copies of that. Yes. Why did you keep silent all these years? Nobody ever talked about it. It's You know, if somebody asked me, how come you're alive? It's almost like it was your fault. You know, I'm going to tell you another thing. What happened after the war, when we went to the city where my mom came from, you know, certain things Jewish people don't do. Like on a Saturday, you don't carry a package or things, you know. And I was in the city where my mom came from, and I went for a walk with a girl. And it was a little chilly, so I put my blazer on my shoulder, and she did the same thing. And we were coming back, and her mother was standing by the door, and she said to her, do you know, it's today's Saturday. You're not allowed to wear your jacket like that. You have to put it on. So she said to her, she was younger than I was. She said, but my mother was wearing it like that. So she said to her, well, Martha doesn't have a mother to tell her. I never said that to anybody. A couple of months ago, I was with my son. I said to her, him, I'm going to ask you something. And I told her what happened. I said, how come? I said, you're a psychiatrist, tell me why I never mentioned this. It was 75 years, never mentioned. He said to me, Mom, that was hurting you so much that you just blocked that out of your mind. Because when she said that, it's almost like my fault that I am going to mother, you know. It's just, like I said, the guilt comes back to me. Why I'm alive? Why? You know, it's just one of those things, you know. It just stays with you. You've talked about this guilt before, and I've been doing some research on it because I was just so surprised why you would feel guilty at all. But I found that it is a thing. It's called survivor's guilt. Yes, yes. And uh, I'll just read the survivor's guilt is the experience of feeling guilty for surviving a situation or experience that caused death or injury to others. The term was first applied in the 1960s to describe Holocaust survivors. Yes. 
And it's a real thing. Yeah, and I tell you, when we had the first gathering in Washington and people talked about it, that helped me that other people feel like that too, you know, that that was, that, that we all had the experience, yes. So you mentioned that you went back to Poland? Yes, we went back we with, went to a, Auschwitz. with an Israeli tour, yes, called the Kersher tour, we, we toured Auschwitz, Birkenau, and, and other camps too. I forgot all that, I had books, I don't know what happened. I forgot the names of, you know, everything in Poland, you know. It was very strange. One night, our driver was supposed to take us to a hotel. It was very late at night, and it was so eerie, you know, sitting on the bus, and the, our driver was a Polish driver, but our guide was an Israeli young man. I don't know why it was too late. We couldn't find a hotel, so he took us to a, a little inn, you know, and it was such a hot night. They only had air conditioning in the lobby, and I remember having a room and opened the door and the mosquitoes was coming in and dogs were barking. <laughs> just, it was, you know, such, you know, you weren't used to it. <laughs> and, you know, I remember I said to my husband, you know what, in my nerves, I'm not going to sleep. I'm going to go wash my hair. And, you know, and, oh, I never slept that night. And early in the morning, we went down to the lobby because it was, it was an eerie feeling. You know, it's almost like, my God, I'm back in Poland, you know. Uh, you know, it was a strange feeling. But there is a museum in Warsaw, you know, and it was interesting. So the guide, he was using Hebrew words. So somebody asked, are you Jewish? He said, well, according to the Jewish law, I'm not because my mother is not Jewish. My father is Jewish. And we met his father. He was, he had the key for the cemeteries, you know, and he said, my grandson is studying in Israel. And it's interesting. They all want to know now about the young people want to know the history, you know. In Poland, a lot of famous people, you know, came from Poland. There's a community there, you know, a Jewish community. So now you tell your story on a daily basis almost at the well, Museum of Tolerance here in week, Los Angeles. This week, Sunday, yesterday, and tomorrow, every <laughs> Wednesday and Friday. You're staying busy. You wake me up middle of the night, I wish I could tell a happier story. <laughs> but you know what? I have a sense of humor, and I don't know if you if you know in Israel, they, they call the Veiling Wall. And, you know, so there is a room in the Holocaust survivor, they call that the Kotea, the veiling wall, the uh, uh, six million little holes, and people make notes and put it in there. So there was a story in Israel, you know, this guy lived across the street from the veiling wall, and he saw people from all over the world coming. But then he noticed this old man with a cane three times a day. For weeks, he's watching. So he was so curious, he went out and he said to him, tell me, what are you praying for? He said, well, I'm praying for peace and health. And tell me, is your prayer being answered? He said, well, not that you ask me. Sometimes I think I'm just talking to the wall. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, these are the jokes that I, that I, I like to tell jokes. I like to see people smile, you know, because sometimes the children think it's, it's, disrespectful, but I want them to smile already, you know, and that's why I talk about my grandchildren, you know, they, they, I want them to smile, you know. Martha, let's take a break, and then we'll come back for some closing thoughts. Okay. We're already working on the next season of Belly of the Beast Life Stories, and I want to invite you to be a part of it. Season two, For Love of My Child, introduces listeners to uplifting stories about the crucial relationship between a parent and their child through sacrifice, loss, and yes, the unimaginable. Visit our website, 
inourbelly.com to learn more and see if your story is a good fit. We plan to launch season two in March of 2020. Subscribe now for free wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with Martha for some closing thoughts. Martha, has any good come out of this? Well, that's what we were hoping. But we were in Auschwitz while talking about it. If we ever get out from there and the world is going to hear about it, it's going to turn for the better. Where one thing is we got our own country because the Nazis said we went to like the sheep to the slaughterhouse. Well, they had guns and dogs. So how can you <laughs> run away? You know, but I think from what I learned, because I want to remember good people, that how important it is to be kind to one another, because sooner or later we will all meet our makers and let God be the judge. When you made that decision in the 80s to go to that gathering of Holocaust survivors, it must have opened up just a, the whole dam of emotions for you Yes, that you've really never been able to put back in the box. So I, w- I wonder, do you feel, are you happy that you made that decision? Of course, you know, and it's interesting. When I made the tape, I never forget that. And I said, well, you have to remember hate and prejudice, the disease. If we're not careful, it could destroy the world. You know, that was the last thing I think at the end of the tape, because that's the way I felt about it. You know? And many times when people said, oh, I wouldn't go to Germany, and I said, you know, I don't want to hear that. This is the third generation. We don't want children to suffer for, for their father or grandfather's sins. You know, we want to mend the world. We don't want to start all over again. You got to find solutions. You get to know each other and live in peace. You know, I wish they would show good things. You know, I have a cousin that in Israel and her children are friends with their children. They marry marriages. They go to their schools, the universities, you know. I wish they would show some of that. The average people want to live in peace. I don't think there is one mother in this world that wants their child to be killed or be a killer. You know, you have to remember that. But we don't understand why there's this couple of leaders that just make trouble. So they don't learn from the past. What happened to Saddam Hussein, Bin Laden, and all this one that they caught, you know? You know, it's hard to understand evil, very hard. I don't know what the solution is, but. I wouldn't give up. I still hope that one day they find a way to, so we could live in peace in the world. You know, it would be very important. Martha, thank you so much for this story. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Hey guys, it's David All. I want to let you in on something, a vision for what Belly will be in the world. I know what it feels like to feel alone, completely lost, broken. But to slowly find my footing and give myself grace, I had to first hear a story that helped me reshape my own narrative. I climbed out of the belly, a new man that, as my mom told me, is a much nicer person. The stories that we hold in our belly about our personal triumphs will heal and inspire others. My vision is that one day, Belly of the Beast Life Stories will be listener-supported, a movement of people that want 
to get these stories into the hands of those who need to hear them, connecting us to our own narrative and lifting us up. Perhaps a second chance for someone who thought there was no way out. Hope for someone who is feeling completely hopeless. And even a laugh because someone else feels the same way that we do. See? Look, listening and rating us and sharing this podcast with your friends is super helpful. And I appreciate it. But if you want to take a step further and join this movement, we need your personal buy-in. We've started what's called a Patreon page, which is a simple way that you can make a 5 or 10 or $25 monthly contribution or more to this show. And if you do, you'll get access to ad-free shows and other things like helping me choose the next season to curate. Visit nrbelly.com to learn more and become a patron. And send me an email, david at nrbelly.com, if the website is confusing, or if you'd like some help, or if you'd like to talk about how to support the production and distribution of the show in other ways. I'm totally open to your ideas about how to make this happen. Thank you so much for being a part of this. I really appreciate it. Next week on Belly of the Beast Life Stories. You know, I think it's true of most people. It's probably true of more so of most physicians. We find ourselves on the dull side of the needle. And so now to be placed in the, in the position where I'm the patient really took a, a little bit of a mindset change. Dr. Julian Gold is a 30-year physician and two-time mayor of Beverly Hills. He's one of the most respected people in the Los Angeles medical community. When he was diagnosed with a deadly form of cancer, acute myeloid leukemia, he had to learn how to behave like a patient, not a doctor. This story will be particularly uplifting to those who have faced cancer, their family, and stem cell transplant donors and recipients. Subscribe right now wherever you get your podcasts. This episode will be released on Monday, November 25th, just in time for Thanksgiving travel. Belly of the Beast Life Stories is advised by Artie Wu of presidelife.com, sound mixing by Milos Brosetta, and produced by me, your host, David All, and my story design company, 1990.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at InOurBelly and visit our website, InOurBelly.com. See you next week.